0: Welcome back to the fantasy, pro, the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm going to mess this up again. I just talked to Adam for That's about cool. 30 seconds, and I did not hit record. So here we are again, um, but he was able to correct me on some of the things that I said incorrectly from his bio that says, issues, obfuscation, espouses elucidation, writes about football, kisses and tells. He's got his link to his dynastytheory.blogspot.com uh, on his Twitter feed, at Adam Harstad. Adam, sorry I made you sit through that twice. Please tell me how you're doing tonight I am I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well Um, when I got on I was super excited to talk to adam and I was like being a fangirl and I was telling him how excited I was about all stuff and I can tell already adams like one of those super steady don't get too high Don't get too low guys And i'm like being in his face about how excited about all the content that he's put out Um, he did a recent podcast with scott barrett from fantasy points They talked about whether running backs matter or not um and Adam made some really really good points. He's also talked a lot about in-depth about um, The death rate for for running backs when it comes to fantasy football um, He's just he's with he's with football guys He is really really super smart and I wanted to get him on the pod because you were one of the uh, you were in in demand man you were uh, I put out on Twitter uh, Who is somebody that you really want to hear more about? and and you were like the number one name you were like the 1.01 of the of guys and girls that uh, people wanted to hear more about. So um, thanks again for coming on. I I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Happy to hopefully uh, after this, everybody sick me again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. So we can start with the obvious, right? Um, The, the elephant in the room, the purple elephant in the room, will the NFL have a season and, and to what extent do you think that happens? And I just sort of want to hear your thoughts, even if you're just riffing off the cuff here. Um, I mean,
1: I I really think that the most honest answer anybody can give right now is I don't know, Um, largely because whether the NFL has a season or not at this point might be out of the hands of the NFL. I mean, it's going to depend on so many different things. Um, You know, can states get the outbreaks under control? What happens if, you know, half of the NFL teams play in states that have things relatively under control and half of them don't? You know what's everything going to look like and um i i don't think it really matters what you're a subject matter expert on um i don't think anybody can be an expert or even really informed on all of the different variables at play here and so i just i think it's hard for anybody to have an educated opinion on this um i i do like to say i Um, Instead of projections, I like to operate off of rules of thumb um, or heuristics. I think they're really quick and easy hacks that um, science has shown. They they can make make judgment under uncertainty a lot easier. And so I think the big heuristic is that the NFL is a multi-billion dollar industry that's very, 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 very motivated to find some way to make this work. Um, So if I were placing bets, I would bet on the money finding a way to be made. but, you know, if you're asking me to assign a degree of confidence to that, it's, it's pretty low. Just the
0: error bars are just so large here. Right. And I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I tend to agree that the variables at play are multifactorial. So you can talk to somebody like, uh, I don't know, I know Dr. Zach Binney, uh, who's on Twitter. He's an epidemiologist. And he's going to give you his type of background can probably give you the best understanding of where all of this lies but then you know when you talk about fantasy football in particular then that dives into the specifics of okay well what does that mean for injuries what does that mean for um you know players that are going to be on the ir what does that mean for the volatility of of my running backs should i draft their handcuffs should i have them um as handcuffs where do you lie with that like where do you lie with the idea of we don't know what's going to happen, so we should prepare for you know everything? Or do you, do you lie as we don't know what we don't know, so we should just move forward um, with the status quo when it comes to fantasy football? Where do you lie with that?
1: Well, fantasy football is at its core a game of limited resources. Um, so I don't think you can prepare for any, everything. Uh, you don't have unlimited draft picks. You don't have unlimited roster spots. Um, you're going to have to make choices, trade-offs, decisions, um, and you can, you know, you can make the best and most educated choices you can, you just have to accept that there's a really good chance they're going to be wrong. Um, I in In usual years, and maybe especially in this year, everybody's talking about drafting your own handcuffs. I think the real play here is drafting other people's handcuffs, because the cool thing about fantasy is that It's really about volatility. Um, You know, it's, if you don't finish first, you finish last is the saying. And for a lot of people, that's a hard thing, but um, I kind of think it's kind of freeing because, you know, most fantasy football leagues you enter, you will lose. I mean, the, the vast majority of fantasy football leagues, no matter how good you are, the vast majority of fantasy football leagues you enter, you'll lose. So, I think there's room for a little bit of Maverick-type risk-taking, where instead of saying, if my number one running back gets hurt, I don't want my season to be tanked, and instead think, what happens if my running back stays healthy, and his running back gets hurt, and now I've got two starting running backs? Um, So I'm not saying don't draft your own handcuffs. I'm just saying you don't necessarily have to start there. If your handcuffs are a good value, then that means other people's handcuffs are a good value by
0: the same token absolutely i think that when when i think of specific players when it comes to drafting their handcuffs if you're sitting there in like a 12-team standard league or whatever and you know ninth or tenth round for whatever reason tony pollard or alexander madison which by the way madison i think is a higher value than that just given circumstances before covid um there's no reason not to take tony pollard right there's no reason not to take alexander madison uh i know that you talked with scott on on his pod a little bit about You know like running backs and and what they mean and you know do they matter well do they matter to relative to what position what are we talking about Um, and their upside and what upside means so yeah you make a you make a really you bring up a really really valid point about not being able to prepare for everything and so that can free you and free your mind to be okay to not have to be obsessive over your picks over what you do over the decisions that you make and I think that's one of the things that I have fallen uh, sort of a I guess a victim of i don't want to make myself sound like a victim necessarily i think i've done it to myself to where i overanalyze every single waiver wire pickup every single start sit decision every single decision that i make becomes some sort of uh agonizing choice that you know there's a right and there's a wrong and i need to be able to make that decision right now so i i like the idea of what you're saying about how like hey you're probably going to lose anyway, so just you know, make whatever decision you want that you think is going to give you the best chance to win. What do you think is, you know, maybe a a decision or or a mistake that fantasy players in general, you know, on average, tend to make when it comes to fantasy football?
1: Um, overconfidence, and and you mentioned waivers. Um, I think a great example for me is you know people spend so much time with their their um, blind bidding free agent budgets, trying to think about like, what's the perfect bid? You know, you've got $1,000, should I bid $891 here or should I bid $892 (laughs) here, you know? What if, you know, what if somebody else is thinking that they'll bid $891 and I've got to do eight ninety. dollars maybe I'll do $893. Um, and, And to me, the most freeing thing is if you're in a league that's got a couple years of history, go back and look at all of the waiver claims from last year you know, sort them from however the highest bid was to the lowest bid was. Dude, that's so genius. Wow. And I will bet you, you will find none of them mattered. None of them made a difference. You know, like maybe one dude and, and it's easy to think like, oh yeah, you know, like so-and-so was such a huge waiver wire pickup, you know, last year or so-and-so was such a huge waiver wire pickup three years ago. Yeah. There are guys who are huge waiver wire pickups, but look at them. And they're usually guys who were picked up two weeks before they broke out for 10 bucks. You know, so my free agent blind bid strategy, um, and this isn't, I mean, it's, it's mostly game theory optimal, I think, um, but it's not just about being game theory optimal. I, I almost always just blow my huge, my whole budget on whoever the first guy comes along that catches my fancy. Um, you know, there's, there's one guy usually in the first couple of weeks where I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll just blow it all on that guy. And then I don't have to worry about it for the rest of the year. You know, and I'm not. Everybody's like, "Oh, but then you don't have any to bid on everybody else." And it's like, well, you know, being able to bid on other guys isn't going to be an advantage anyway. They're all gonna bust. So if I just spend it all right now, that's one less thing I have to worry about this season. Because um, most of the most of the impact ads are guys who are gotten for free anyway. It's not like it's very rare that you have a hotly contested free agent edition who actually winds up mattering. It's, it's, it's exceedingly rare. Did I lose you there? Was my, was my take too hot for you? I think.
0: Ah, ah, no, sorry. I literally did the same thing about, uh, what I didn't do last time. Sorry. That wasn't such a hot take. (laughs) <laughs> um, I muted myself and then I was just talking into the mic. Geez, oh Pete, man, I'm really blowing this. I'm, I'm, I'm like blowing this opportunity I have with you to record. Good Lord. I promise I've done this before.
1: <laughs> it's the off season for everyone. Man. It's, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. So that's hilarious that you said, is that a hot take? It's not a hot take to literally say, dude, none of this matters. Um, I think that it's such a good point to bring up about like agonizing over a decision that in the end probably isn't going to matter or make that big of a difference and you're in in your fantasy on your fantasy football team right because you're gonna have those linchpins that you drafted early and they just happen to be on your bench right like how many unless you're like a a really 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 sharp dfs player most people right like 99 percent of people miss a breakout week quote-unquote breakout week of you know that rookie running back or that that second year wide receiver or whatever so just basically it sounds to me like what you're saying is like just go with your gut and just play the game and have fun. Is that to a certain extent maybe what you mean?
1: Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be go with your gut. I mean, like do analysis, that's fine. Right, right. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying shoot from the hip, uh, but I think agonize a little less over it. It's, I think that you should devote time and effort commensurate to how much that time and effort helps you. And if there's something you can do that's going to make a big difference for you, then sure, spend five hours on it, okay? But waiver wire ads are not that thing. They're they're going to make a minuscule impact on your bottom line most of the time. And so I think you should devote a minuscule impact of your mental space to it. You know, I don't think you should I don't think it really behooves you to be agonizing over it and turning over it and and, and thinking about it once you once you hit submit. Just make a bid, hit submit you know, if it was a bad bid, it probably is. Most bids are bad bids. Most <laughs> waiver ads don't do anything for you. Um, but do your analysis, make your pick, you know, and, and go with it and then move on and, and you know, be be generous with yourself if you end up being wrong later. Uh, this this is very hard. It's hard for everybody. Um, you're gonna get a lot wrong. Everybody gets a lot wrong. It's, it's like baseball. You know, if you fail two times out of three,
0: you're an all pro. Right. 100% and that's a good point you bring up and when you started talking unless I misheard you because I'm obviously having audio and video technic- technical difficulties over here but um, I think you said something about overconfidence and it also sort of is related to the topic that I wanted to touch on with you too I think you talked about it with Scott where you basically or maybe not I don't remember where I saw it I, I gotta be honest I just remember I wanted to ask you about it this idea of like revisionist history right where you made a decision uh, or you you gave advice about x player maybe you said this before you give advice about an, you know x player and what ends up happening is your outcome that you predicted was correct but it wasn't for the reason that you said so like you said avoid x player because their offensive line is bad the offense is bad the quarterback situation is new the coaching staff doesn't you know hand the ball off to that player don't drop this player their production is going to be bad and then what ends up happening to that player is they take one snap, they tear their ACL like Lamar Miller did last last year in the preseason, and um, and that's that, right? So like that's sort of like what I what I view or what I define as a revisionist history. Do you think that there's a lot of that that goes on in fantasy football, or what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I think it was actually Sigmund Bloom
1: who uh, who gave that example, and uh, Bloom's a really sharp guy, and I think he's right on there. Um, you know what it gets down to is our brains are not designed to find the right answer and it's it seems like they are it seems like they should be um and and so people i think fall prey to this idea that like my brain worked its magic and it did its thinking and it came up with this answer and my brain is designed to lead me to the right answer so this must be the right answer and that's really not what our brains are designed for they, there's all sorts of cognitive biases Um, They are designed to be um, overly cautious because, you know, through most of human history, risk-taking behavior was commensurately punished, you know. The classic example is, um, you know, if you have your caveman ancestors hear a rustling in the bush and they think, oh, that's a tiger, and it winds up being the wind, those caveman ancestors survive. If your caveman ancestors think, oh, that's the wind, and it winds up being a tiger, those caveman ancestors died. So I we're love that prone, so like our brains are built. <laughs> if we hear wind or, you know, if we hear rustling, we think it's a tiger, even though, you know, nine times out of 10, it's the wind. Tigers are not that common. Um, but that's, our, our thinking is designed to be useful to us. And it's it's, our brains are designed to be useful, but they're not designed to be right. And a lot of the things that our brains do that are useful are things like um, ego protection, you know, we have this idea in our head about who we are, you know, we have this, this identity, and our brains will defend that identity. And, you know, if our identity is somebody who's good at fantasy football, our brains are going to cherry pick evidence to convince us, yeah, man, you are, you're really good at fantasy football, um, because that's useful, because that makes us feel better as a person, because that helps us get through the day. Um, But it's not necessarily right. And so a lot of times, if we make a call and we're right for the wrong reasons, the brain's not going to see that. It's not the brain's job. The brain's going to say, you know, attaboy, good job. Um, You get a lot of things like hindsight bias or uh, creeping determinism, uh, which is this idea that whenever something happens, we think it's predictable in hindsight, despite the fact that obviously we didn't predict it ahead of time, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, if Rob Gronkowski gets injured in week eight all of these guys who are saying oh yeah draft rob gronkowski is your starting tight end they're going to be like oh of course he's going to get injured it's rob gronkowski there's no surprise there but that's just you know everything's predictable with hindsight hindsight is twenty twenty. um but again that's just another and there's i mean i could go on for hours about all of the different ways that our brains deceive us that our brains um selectively process information that our brains serve their real purpose, which is, um, serving us and being useful to us, but not necessarily seeking truth because they are not objective fact-finding, you know, soulless disembodied entities that exist to just seek out data and, and lead us to the truth. That's not what they do. That's not what they're for.
0: No, absolutely not. And I can agree with a lot of what you just said, because, when it, comes by, when it comes to the brain's role, right? The brain's role is to receive information and relay information, right? So that's its two, two parts, right? And when it comes, and I know we'll, we'll eventually tie this back to fantasy football, but I think you make a very, very relevant point when it comes to fantasy football. Um, because I think that the brain's role, and the studies have shown this, especially when it comes to pain, is to relay information and then interpret that information. But those are two very, very different things, right? So when it comes to pain, for example, if I am running barefoot, whatever, down a sidewalk and I have never ever in my life ran barefoot on the sidewalk and I step on a nail, then it's gonna hurt a lot. But what's gonna happen is my, my, my body, my periphery, my foot is gonna say, hey, there's, it's going to send a signal to your brain. The signal to the brain from the foot is going to say, hey, something's going on here. It's no susception. This might actually be damage to your tissue. This could be bad. You should stop immediately. How am I going to get you to stop? I'm going to send no susception. And then your higher level cognitive function is going to tell you, hey, this is pain. This might be swelling. This might be, you know, damage. You need to stop and check it out. Let's see what's going on. The, the, the science shows us that if that happens to me and then i do it again i take my shoes off i run barefoot down the down the sidewalk and i step on the same nail in the same spot at the same intensity we, i mean this is hypothetical the chances that happening are very very unlikely if the exact same situation happens again my pain my perceived my perception of that pain is is amplified by is amplified exponentially even though i stepped on the same nail in the same spot on the same foot, at the same speed, at the same rate, my pain experience statistically, and this, this bears out in the studies, is is greater than what it would be than what it was the first time. That's because my brain remembers. Because my brain blocks out everything else and wants to protect me. And I think that leads to like a bigger – I know we're sort of we're, – we're derailed, but that's what I wanted to do. That's why I wanted to get you on here. I think that the bigger sort of fantasy football-related, uh, uh, I guess – I don't know tie-in here is that we do have we do suffer and I'm this I'm the biggest victim of this is like the Dunning Kruger effect I forget how I got to any like fantasy football championship that I ever won I forget how that happened even if there was a ton of luck involved because my brain is protecting me and like you said earlier your brain is telling you like hey you're pretty good at this so what do you think then is like low-hanging fruit from that perspective to change a fantasy players sort of like point of view and and maybe try to block out your brain's uh bias bias nature of telling you like hey you're really good at this like what's some what's some low-hanging fruit that maybe fantasy players can hang their hat on or or try to give gain perspective to make themselves better um
1: well i'm really big on on history um and partly it's because i come i come to football and i come to fantasy football from the background of, of somebody who's into the stories of the game um and i've said elsewhere i think the great thing about football compared to the other sports is I think it has a narrative through line in a way that other sports don't. You know, I think that in baseball each at bat is kind of an individual standalone event. Um, whereas, you know, in football, you get, you get a really good football play play caller, and they're telling a story with their play calls. They're, you know, they're calling this play to try and set up that play later on. Um, and it's all tied together and it's all about the story. Um, And so because of this, I I love the history of football and I love, you know, the path that it's taken to get here. And I I love the history of my fantasy football teams too. And so for me, it's going back and actually looking at that history. You know, like I was mentioning with the waiver wire ads, I want to know how likely am I to gain value on the waiver wire? Well, let's look at every waiver wire ad I've ever made in my history and oh yeah no I'm not this is this is completely valueless you know I have a I have a dynasty team that I've been building for um since 2007 was our first season um and it's just this monster team and I track every player on that team and where I got them you know like I got these players from the rookie draft I drafted them and I've held them since then I got these players you know via trade um I got these players off of waiver claims And I got these players in first come first serve free agency, you know, after waiver claims were processed, you know, I just added a few free players here and there. So there's four columns where the players can come from. And, um, I'm a very active trader. So far and away, the majority of my roster is players I've acquired through trade. And then the second biggest group is either, um, guys I've got through the rookie draft and I've just held since I drafted them or, um, guys I added in first come first serve free agency and that's usually like if I need to stream a defense I'm not going to burn waiver priority so usually my defense at any given time is a player that I added in first come first serve free agency and then in the waiver column right now there's literally not a single player there's not a single player on my team who I burned waiver priority and I added this player to my team and they're still on my team at this moment there's nobody and if I don't go back and look at that and realize that, then when waivers come around, I'm going to be placing too much value on that. I'm going to be saying, this is a very important tool for me to build my roster. But because I go back and I look at the history, I'm like, you know, this is not, this is, you know, if I have the number one waiver priority, I'm not going to be like, oh, let's save this until a really good prospect comes along. I'm going to be like, eh, do I kind of like this guy? Sure. I'll just burn it. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to, I'm not going to agonize over it. Um, you know, I look at my trades. I look at previous draft picks. Uh, I say one of the advantages of writing about fantasy football is I have I can go back, and I can actually read my reasoning. You know, I I traded um, Devontae Adams back in 2015 in one of my dynasty leagues. I traded Devontae Adams for Dion Lewis, um, and I was very happy with that trade. And I Did know you actually? I was very happy with that trade because you know I wrote about it, and I can see like, oh, this is what I thought about it at the time. And that's perspective that like, first of all, I'm kind of dumb and I, I'm wrong a lot. And that's okay, cause you know, my teams are successful despite that. And um, it's also, I think really good perspective. When I start to fall in love with a player now, I can go back and look at like, okay, who are the last 10 players I fell in love with? And how did that work out for me? And so, you know, how excited, how willing should I be to overpay based on, you know,
0: a hunch or based on, you know, I just really have a feeling about this guy. Dude, Adam, what you do, and it sounds like to me, is something that is, um, some, somebody very close to me has, has spoken to um, uh, a psychiatrist on, on their own accord. They decided, like, I need to figure this out. I don't, I don't think they didn't necessarily have, like, a diagnosis, which there would be nothing wrong with that. But uh, basically did psychoanalysis and what the main takeaway was that the most important skill to have as a, a person right not even fantasy football a person is self-reflection introspection analysis and general self-awareness and it's so funny to me that like all of these basic tools and skills that most people don't have You Utilize on your like in it sounds like you utilize them for fantasy football obviously and I'm 99% sure I could say Correct me if I'm wrong you use them for your everyday life, which is just hilarious Which is obviously like in a good way like that's so good because I think that the low-hanging fruit here It sounds like is just being aware of what do you do? Why did you do it and how is it gonna affect your future decisions? Um, I think that's awful. That's that's awesome. Not awful. I think that's awesome Um so that's, I don't know, I don't know, that's sort of where my brain went when I was listening to you talk, was one of my mentors, by the way, this is sort of ties into, one of my physical therapy mentors says all the time, experts do the basics very well. And it seems like as a fantasy football player, at least you do the basics very well. Would you agree with that? Um,
1: I think to a large extent for me in particular, I think that's a, a survival tool because I don't do any of the advanced stuff well. You know, I'm a guy. You know, I don't... I, You know, Matt Waldman has been scouting players intensively for 12 years, and I'm in leagues with Matt Waldman. How am I going to compete with Matt Waldman on scouting? I'm not. You know, there's guys who've been doing projections and have been winning awards for projections for 20 years, and I'm not going to compete with that, and I can't compete with that. Um, And so... You know, you can either do the same thing everybody else is doing better than they're doing it, or you can do something different. Um, And especially, I mean, don't be different just to be different, but if you can find something, like you said, the low-hanging fruit. And then a lot of it, too. You know, we're talking about introspection and and being honest with ourselves. A lot of it is, um, I'm kind of lazy, and I don't really want to work hard. (laughs) And so I think having easy things like this you know, I, I said that I, I use a lot of heuristics and part of the reason I use heuristics is because I think there's some good science about it and, and you know, I could give you some conceptual underpinnings and I can, I can give you some links to pieces on the theory of why heuristics work so well in highly uncertain environments. Um, but if I'm being honest, a large part of the reason I use them is because they're easy and I get to hand wave a lot of stuff away and that makes my life easier and I like that.
0: I think that um, you said something really interesting to me too is that, you know, you get to use heuristics or these general principles of just like, hey, you know, this probably is going to work. This is probably, you know, maybe not. Um, we'll adjust for the situation and we'll go from there. And it's so, ah, God, this is like, it's so interesting to me how I feel like these are very um, simple, I guess, methods, simple. Sources of 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 self-improvement that just go Ignored because it's always like hey, what's the next who's you know, what's the next flashy statistic? What's the next who's the next player coming out and why you know, what are what's the next advanced metric that I can use? but just general Understanding of how you have behaved in the past what's been successful? What has not been successful and using yourself as almost like a a self-selected case study to understand yourself is something that you you would you you would suggest to fantasy football players? Does that summarize it very well? Is that does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and and a lot of it's just about you know intentionality is is the big key here. It's, right. Um. And and not being overconfident because if you're overconfident in any approach, you're gonna mess yourself up. Um. I think a lot of humility. Uh. And I I've I have a tweet thread somewhere about I think humility is a good policy for two reasons. Um, First of all, I think it's genuinely appealing. I think, you know, people don't like associating with somebody who's gonna dunk all over them every time he's right. Um, And then I I think the result is every time you're wrong, if you're not very humble about when you're right, you're gonna get, you know, a whole heaping pile of blowback, you know, every time you're wrong. Um, But then also, I just think humility is a good policy because it kind of limits the downside of being wrong. You know, if I'm wrong, it's not going to cost me that much because I'm not making all-in bets because I don't trust myself enough to make all-in bets. Um, so for me, it's a it's a game of being right slightly more than I'm wrong because the losses are never going to sink me because I'm not I'm not committed enough to anything where I'm all in where where one mistake in my reasoning is going to snow my entire team under. Um, you know, I, I set up a bunch of systems and the goal is for these systems, not even to be perfect, just to be better than the next guys and to just compound small advantages, you know, like a 1% edge here, a 2% edge there,
0: you know, you add all those up and eventually you've got, you've got a real edge. I think that's the perfect way to look at it too, because when you're in a room, like you were saying, I mean, you're in these leagues with people like Matt Waldman and I mean you're right you're (laughs) I would be in the same position as you I'd be like how how the hell am I gonna get an edge on this person like you know I'm in a league with uh, with the fantasy points guys with Joe Dolan and Graham Barfield and Scott Barrett how the hell am I gonna gain an advantage over those guys I I do injury analysis right that's like that's like uh, asking the it's like asking the school cook you know like how did you I don't know how do you do algebra like long algebra or something that's not that's not what they do that's just not what I do and so gaining little advantages does make sense but I think that we're in agreement here when it comes to being overconfident whether you're zero RB whether you're zero wide receiver uh, early round quarterback late round quarterback whatever like whether you're any of those things being overconfident in that is really I think people's detriment and that's that's where you get it the, the Dunning-Kruger that I've mentioned before um, for those of you who don't know Dunning-Kruger basically means you are better or you're worse at something than you think you are um, and you're there's a lot of bias there where you think that you made the right decision Because of your intelligence when in reality, it was sort of dumb luck for lack of, of a better term I think a lot of I think the average fantasy football player does suffer from some level Of of dunning kruger and even some of you know, even some some analysts some fantasy analysts Maybe it's just lack of humility. Maybe it's not so much dunning kruger um, but I think that there there are gen- definitely people in the fantasy community that I have, have observed um, are do suffer from some sort of Dunning Kruger. This next, well, here's a, I mean here's ahead, a quick ahead.
1: example for you for for any league, um, and I, I call it it's I think it's irrational exuberance. Um, so if you go pick any league at all and you say it's a ten team league, and you ask every team what are your odds of winning the title this year right <laughs> right and then you add Good all question. those up and that league is that league must be awarding two titles because you <laughs> add up everybody's odds and it adds up to 200 percent. so either they're handing out two trophies or everybody is overconfident and how many guys in that league you know how many guys are going to say that their odds are under 10 in a 10 team league you know not half of the guys when in reality you know, half of people are below average. That's kind of the definition. I mean, you can quibble about whether we're talking median or mean, but yeah, half of half of people are going to underperform, and half of people are going to overperform. Um, and first of all, luck is going to play a big role in which half is which. But even ignoring luck, even over a long timeline, you know, a lot people, a lot of people think maybe everybody thinks that they're better than they're than they really are, and over a long enough timeline
0: everybody is going to overestimate their chances. Absolutely. I can definitely see that. And this next question is sort of like along the same lines. Um, But you talked with Scott um, again about this idea of coaches who, you know, I think that a lot of people do get on to NFL head coaches too much. I think that there is some level of Dunning-Kruger in that effect too, where we as non-football related people you know not directly anyway we think that we know more than a head coach or we think we know more than you know uh, a GM or something and I think that does happen too often I would say that it's probably it probably goes too far to think that we you know as everyday laymen, could could run an NFL organization when we've never done it before Um, but I think the opposite end of that spectrum too is maybe giving people too much credit maybe giving GMs and coaches too much credit um, and I put it in the document too. It's it's called the argumentum ad vercondium. Essentially, it's, it just means like you defer to authority simply because a person is an authority. For example, you know, it would not, in my opinion, this is of course my opinion, uh, it would not be unreasonable to criticize Daniel Snyder and say, you know, the, the owner of the Washington football team and say he is, you know, probably not good at running an organization efficiently. Um, but at the same time, You know, just because a team, like you said, runs into some bad luck, for example, you wouldn't say the Eagles are are a poorly run organization just because they couldn't get out of the NFC East. Um, But what, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on maybe NFL head coaches getting too much credit for success or not getting enough credit for success?
1: Well, so you brought up the appeal to authority. Um, And this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I feel like discussion on the internet is often a, g- is, is a game of, of, you know, performative arguments. You're you're not arguing with the person you're arguing with. You're arguing to the audience. Right. And it's all a game about you're scoring performing. points. Yep. And everybody learns like this, this quick list of logical fallacies. And you basically have a discussion until you can pull out something on the list. And you said, ah, 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 you did appeal to authority. Therefore, mm. you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So appeal to authority is um, a logical fallacy when you're doing deductive reasoning, when you're trying to prove you know, two plus two equals four, okay? And if you want to make that proof, you have to prove it on its merits. You can't just say two plus two equals four because Albert Einstein is really smart and Albert Einstein says two plus two equals four. That doesn't prove that two plus two equals four. Now, it's a very different thing when you're saying, you know, I believe this because authority figures said that. I think that's a very reasonable thing. I don't think that's a logical fallacy at all. If Albert Einstein says that, you know, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, I think it's reasonable for me to say, okay, you know what? Albert Einstein's a pretty smart dude. A bunch of other scientists have had a go with that. They don't seem to have any problem with that. I don't really understand what's going on there. So I'm I'm not going to go down to first principles and prove this for myself that it's true, but I'm going to defer to their authority in that case because we can't be subject matter experts on everything. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough brain cells in my brain. I'm not smart enough to know everything, and nobody's been smart enough to know everything for hundreds of years. There's There's actually literature on people are trying to guess who the last person to know everything was. Um, which is a silly, pointless thing academics do to waste their time. But it's not it, not for hundreds, if not thousands of years, has that been possible. So we need to, to function in this society, to function in this world at some point. You know, going back to heuristics, a useful heuristic is an expert said this, so therefore I'm going to believe it. You know, doctors tell me that washing my hands can help me from getting sick now i don't know you know the viral structure and you know okay something about right. you know lipid outer shells and i don't know i know that we have created this class of people called doctors and we sent them to this thing called medical school so they could learn about all that stuff so i don't have to because i can just ask them and then listen to them and so i think if if somebody says well coaches think that maybe it's okay to punt on fourth and you know long and somebody says, "Oh, well, that's appeal to authority." Well, no, I'm not trying to prove that it's okay. I'm saying it's reasonable for me, as you know, a lightly educated layperson on this subject, to think that maybe there's something to to that, and to think that that represents evidence. Um, it's not proof, but it's evidence. And if we operate as logical beings, we're going to take whatever evidence we encounter, and we're going to update our beliefs in the face of that evidence. And and sometimes coaches are wrong I can give you I can rattle off hundreds of examples of times especially throughout NFL history where we know that coaches were wrong you know Bill Belichick or not Bill Belichick Bill Walsh created the west coast offense he emphasized horizontal passing and we know that everybody at the time was wrong to ignore horizontal passing and we know that because now everybody passes horizontally because it's so effective it has taken over the entire league and history's full of all things. Everything that teams used to do and they don't do anymore, they don't because they were wrong about it. So I don't think you necessarily have to take, you know, owners and GMs and coaches and assume that they're infallible. But I do think the fact that they believe something has to count for something. It has to, because they have been doing this their whole lives, and they've, you know, there's a very rigorous winnowing process to make it to the NFL in the first place. You know, you got to go through high school and college, you got to be a successful position coach, you got to be a successful coordinator. Um, It's hard. And I don't know that the 32 head coaches are the 32 best qualified individuals in the entire world. They're probably not. But they're probably all among the 500 best qualified individuals in the world. You know, it's, it's evidence, it's not proof, but it's evidence.
0: I think that's a good way to put it is it's evidence, it's not proof. Um, because a lot of times, and you said this, I think as well on um, regarding evidence you said this on the pod with with Scott Barrett, is that anecdotal evidence, you know a, the sum of anecdotal evidence is not direct evidence, but it's still evidence nonetheless once you cross a certain threshold. And so it probably makes sense to give certain head coaches in the NFL and certain GMs a, a certain level you know of leash for lack of a better phrase. Because like you said, they probably do know what they're doing to a certain extent. They probably did maybe hit some bad luck to a certain extent, right? Like what would have happened if Bill Belichick didn't win the Super Bowl, the first Super Bowl with Tom Brady in 2001? You know, what if he didn't win it the next year? I don't think they won it the next year, but you know, what what if that would have happened? And You know, at what point do you, at what point do the scales tip and you lose doubt in a coach because maybe they just had some hard luck. So I think you made a, a really good point there. To sort of shift gears a little bit, because um, we were talking about sort of advice for general the general public and 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 maybe potentially how to view certain head coaches and GMs, but I also wanted to talk about what it means when a player is is a value in drafts. Like, what does that mean to you? Because you can say, and I was having this discussion with somebody on Twitter just today. They were talking about James White in particular, and I didn't even intend for this to happen, but I had I had James White in the script already. This person was basically saying, hey, James White actually has a lot of upside because James White, you know, in 2018 finished as RB8 or something. And, and, you know, he's in a pass heavy offense or uh, I guess not a pass heavy offense, but an offense where Cam Newton will probably throw the ball short and he'll get a lot of a lot of looks. And he could be, you know, his upside is this and that. When I view James White as, you know, maybe he's going RB15 and maybe he goes, maybe he finishes RB12. I don't know. But, you know, that's another thing that Scott also says. I mentioned Scott a lot. Um, Scott mentions about upside and when it begins to matter, you know, you can have a bunch of ADP beaters. But if they're, you know, ADP is separated by, you know, maybe one or two or two or three guys, does, does that even make a difference in drafts? Like, what do you think about, you know, beating ADP versus being a league winner? And what does that mean to you when a player beats their ADP? So first of all, the reason that a lot of guys who beat ADP are not league
1: winners is because people measure value wrong. Um, And so like take James White, you know, let's say he's drafted as RB15 and he finishes as RB12. Finishing with the 12th most points at running back does not mean you were the 12th most valuable running back. And that's a very common mistake people make. They, They treat fantasy football as if it is A season-by-season game and it's not. You do not set your lineup in week 1 and roll with those same guys the entire 16 game schedule. It's a week-to-week game. And so here's a really simple example that's that's pretty simple to understand. Okay, let's say that you have two running backs and the first one scores 200 points in 8 games and the other one scores 201 points in 16 games, right? The first running back was more valuable than the second one. Yeah, the second guy scored one more point. He took eight more games to do it. If that first running back had played eight more games and only scored one point in those eight games, would that have made him a more valuable running back or a less valuable running back? And so a lot of the issue, and I do, um, you know, I talk about, I'm big on history. I keep spreadsheets with, with historical fantasy value. And I calculate value on a per game basis. It's points per game minus replacement points per game times the number of games played. And if you adjust the thinking and you start measuring value on a, on a game-by-game basis rather than on a season-by-season basis, a lot of these things where, you know, James White was drafted 15th, he finished 12th, but he wasn't a value, it's because, you know, he's not, he wasn't the 12th most valuable running back. He, he just happened to play 16 games, but there were a lot of guys who were more valuable on a game-by-game basis. So I think a lot of the paradox is not a paradox at all. It's just people are measuring value wrong. One hundred. And then, um, the other thing I want to say is, and I don't, I don't know if you realize this at the time, but I actually, I've been talking about how I'm on team heuristics and, and I don't really, I'm not really big on projections. Um, but actually I do, I do two sets of projections for football guys. I project, um, punt and kickoff returners and I project player upside. Um, and I think I, am the only guy I know of who just projects player upside and I do, I've been doing it for four or five years now. Um, and I back test all my projections and I see, you know, like, am I meaningfully outperforming chance? And so I do feel, um, reasonably well qualified to talk about upside. And I think people underestimate, I. I, I I think people think about upside wrong. I think they think that it's this big predictable thing when in reality, upside is largely just uncertainty. You know, when, when somebody says James White has high upside, I think what they really mean is that James White is underrated, which is a different claim. So different. Yeah, and and that's that's a claim that somebody could make. You know, I'm not gonna argue with somebody if they want to claim that so-and-so is underrated or overrated. Whereas upside, I think, is is this idea that like something we didn't see coming is gonna be coming down coming down the pike and everybody's gonna be floored. You know, Carson Palmer in 2015, I'd been making jokes for for years that Carson Palmer was basically just Eli Manning. You know, he was gonna get you he was gonna get you basically replacement level production for sixteen games and then show up higher in the season ending standings just because he played all sixteen games. And I made that joke for years, and then in 2015 he comes along and puts up an MVP worthy performance and it just shows I you know I have no idea too. I thought the guy was just you know was was a just like a serviceable journeyman, and then all of a sudden he has this monster out of nowhere season um and so when I say that I back test my upside projections and i i I know I'm outperforming chance, I also know by how slim of a margin I'm outperforming chance, you know. Estimating uncertainty is hard because by definition, it's very uncertain. You know, it's, I don't think we really have a great idea about who has upside and who doesn't. I found over the years that there are certain things that, that correlate to upside. Um, being in an uncertain situation tends to mean more upside. If you've got two guys, obviously, who are competing for the number one running back role, both of those guys have higher upside than if you've got something like Zeke Elliott and Tony Pollard, where, you know, assuming everybody stays healthy, Zeke's going to be Zeke and Pollard's going to be Pollard. Um, Younger guys tend to have more upside just because we don't know who they are yet. You know, somebody like Devontae Parker is more likely to have an out-of-nowhere season than someone like... um, Larry Fitzgerald. Right, right, or or (laughs) Frank (laughs) Gore. Right. um what else correlates to upside? Um actually so one thing is um players who are projected for very low yards per carry tend to have um pretty good upside That's just because one. yards per carry is a um it's um it's a voodoo stat that doesn't really it's not predictable and everybody thinks it's predictable but it's
0: not. Explain Explain so if Explain a guy's stat. Huh? Why why is it a voodoo stat? Tell me why yards per carry is a voodoo stat.
1: It's just not predictable, um, So, I, and I've, I've got a zillion examples like this, but um, Aaron Jones had f- above five yards per carry in his first two seasons in the NFL, and so everybody was projecting him for like 4.8, 4.9 yards per carry in his, in his third year, and I went back and I looked, you know, who were the last 10 running backs who had above five yards per carry in each of their first two seasons on a comparable sample size, And what was their yards per carry in their follow-up year? And the median was about 4.3. And that floors people. They're like, no, no, you know, there's no way Aaron Jones is only going to average 4.3 yards per carry. He's been above five. But that would make sense if if yards per carry was a real stat. But it's basically just a random number generator that people think is not a random number generator. So if a guy's projected for a really low yards per carry... Oh, and by the way, so Jones ended up... So he had um, 5.5 yards per attempt his first year, 5.5 yards per attempt his second year, fell to 4.6 last year. Classic. So if, if somebody's projected for you know 4.8, 4.9 yards per carry, there's not a lot of room for him to outperform to, that right right. If somebody's projected for 3.9 yards per carry, there is a lot of room for him to outperform that. Uh, that's um, a good point. Yards per reception actually tends to correlate on a game by game basis, not, not necessarily on a season long basis. And those are two different things too, that season-long upside and weekly weekly upside's more just variance. But uh, high yards per reception, there's a very, very weak correlation. It's not as big as people would think. But the classic example is somebody like Marquise Goodwin, where any time he catches the ball, it could be an 80-yard touchdown. And so he's gonna have a lot of weeks and nothing with a couple and then a couple weeks of, you know, 120 yards and a touchdown. So there's a lot, yeah. There's a lot that goes into to upside, but by and large, after after five years of tracking it and projecting it, and you know, tracking how well I did, I I like to think I have a lot of humility on the subject, um, and and I I think I appreciate just how crazy of a concept it is, and just how bad we are at at knowing who
0: has it and who doesn't. Yes, that's absolutely fair to say, because you're not saying anything. You're not saying anything crazy like you joked earlier when I muted my mic about like oh Was that too hot of a take for you? And it was a very very moderate moderately reasonable lukewarm take that in a good way in terms of like it wasn't too high It wasn't too low, but when you say, you know, I'm not saying anything crazy. That's exactly why it's such nuanced such nuanced information that I feel like we don't get you know You see and this has to do with culture in general too, right? It's it's who are you know your ad these are week five ads week 5 must adds. week 5 must cuts or you know this person will definitely outperform their ADP or this person will not this person is a league winner and it's just our general it just speaks to our broader culture but you're literally saying like hey I got a lot of experience doing this I've found these specific things that might correlate Um, they're not always right but if they tend to line up in the right way then that could potentially help you identify who has upside and who does not and I don't think that's I Don't think that you're being unreasonable. I don't think you're given spewing a hot take or anything like that I think that everything that you're saying lines up and makes sense Which is exactly the reason I wanted to have your voice on here because just from the two two or three You know podcasts that I listened to you were you're one of the few who I believe truly applies context But you apply context with nuance and everything you just talked about upside um, i really I feel like is a good way. It, it's a good example of how you're basically saying i don't know it all but these are the things that might help so i love that man that's that's, that's great before go ahead go ahead
1: no it just thanks
0: um we can skip the the running back age stuff but you can list you can uh go find adam's uh article on on running back age and, and the death rates i think that's super important for people to learn um or to read about i'll put it in the show notes but the one thing that i did want to touch on too because we talked about it is you're very very open on your dynasty uh, dynasty blog website about your your life with depression and i don't want to say struggle because i don't i don't live your experience so i don't want to say that I, it's a struggle it might just be your life um but i think it's important to normalize mental health struggles um and and not str- sorry i just said i wouldn't say struggles mental health in general and, and you're very open about it. So I just sort of wanted to leave the floor open for you to talk, talk about that or take it whatever direction that you'd like to.
1: Yeah. So, um, when I was, uh, 19, I guess, um, I had a a pretty severe depressive episode sleeping 14 hours a day, uh, kind of stopped leaving my room for weeks at a time. Um, and I got diagnosed at the time with situational depression, which is, it's an idea that it's a depression that, that happened in response to events in my life. And um, for something like situational depression, the the reasoning is, you know, you, you deal with whatever triggered the depression in the first place, you get past the depression, you move on, and, and then it's in the past. Um, and then, so I, I thought for years that that was that. And then you know, when I started getting more into self-reflection and introspection, I realized that there were patterns um, and and periods in my life um, that were very difficult to explain unless I realized that, that the depression was not really situational, that it was something that, that was still with me um, and still flared up from time to time. Um, and so over the years, I've, I've become a lot more aware of it and a lot more open about it. Um, and so it's something that, you know, if you, don't, if you don't admit it and acknowledge it, you can't really address it and you can't really deal with it. And I don't wanna, you know, like you said, it's not a struggle. I have lived a charmed life. I have been extremely blessed, extremely fortunate for my entire life. Um, I have not really known much in the way of hardship and by and large, you know, People think of depression as something that afflicts people in in unconscionable situations, but um, by and large, what you see is that people in unconscionable situations do not really get depression. They get depression
0: at rates far lower than the population at large. I do uh, want to say, I'm sorry, I, I do want to interrupt yeah, you there because no, I think that it. you made a really very valid point. So here's the deal is that the one thing that does bother me a lot, and I've seen it in Um, My own family where I've I've observed this or heard this comment before is like, you know, you mentioned depression and the automatic thought is, oh, well, what happened to them? And that's not how that works. That's not how clinical depression works. That's not how changes in mental health works. There doesn't have to be some sort of event that happens that, you know, this this isn't just something transient that goes on and all of a sudden, because, you know, triggered by something. It doesn't have to be triggered by anything. It can be a million different. It could be a bevy of reasons. Can 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 your life situation, you know, impact that? Absolutely. But like you were saying, people who you know are in in dire straits do. They there's a lower rate of depression now. Some of that is because of you know access to healthcare or whatever. Blah blah blah. But there also is something to the idea that your situation does not correlate well. You know, I would argue, and I'd have to look at the studies that it correlates negatively with clinical depression and being depressed and I think that a lot of times unfortunately the word itself to die you know as a diagnosis depression is as a bit of an of a misnomer but I did want to back you on that because that's to a certain extent it's just to me it's ridiculous to say like you can only be depressed if something happens to you when that's not how it works
1: and I think uh, you know that the name I think gives a lot of people the wrong idea, because if you've never really suffered depression, you think you hear depression and you think it's it's basically sadness but dialed up to eleven. Right. Um, and I always say that, you know, when I'm depressed, I'm I'm usually not very sad. Um, right. By and large, I mean, I, sometimes I feel sad, sometimes I don't. I, I think um, there's a lot less emotional variance overall. I think it tends to be more of a flat line than a series of peaks and valleys that I would associate with happiness and sadness. But I think more than anything, it's almost like a like a heaviness. Um, and so it's almost like you know you have you have mental resources that you use to deal with things Um, and so for instance you go to work all day you work all day you get home and what do most people do you know you you make a quick easy convenient dinner you sit on the couch you watch TV you detox there's there's probably things you want to do around the house i've been meaning to organize um our digital pictures and put them into slideshows for forever because my kids love seeing pictures of themselves when they were young and i just never have the energy you know during the day um you're working you're doing stuff your your mind is engaged your mind is busy it has mental resources and you deplete those mental resources and then when they're gone you know they're used up it's it's like when you spend all your money you don't have any money left to spend it's, it's like a budget and for me um, depression i think the most salient um, manifestation is just is just a general reduction in the available mental resources you know for a functioning person um, something like getting out of bed and taking a shower that takes a trivial number of mental resources and typically you do it early in the day when you have your full day's reserve of mental resources they're all nice and replenished um, and that's, you know, trivial. You, you, the alarm goes off, you don't really want to get up. Nobody really wants to get up. If they did, they wouldn't have set an alarm, you know. But you get up, you take a shower, you go to work, and that's that. Um, a lot of times if you're dealing with depression, you don't have that reserve of mental resources. They're, the huge preponderance of it is devoted just by this, by this disease, by this disorder. Um, and so something like getting out of bed and taking a shower for somebody with depression can be like, you know, working a long day and then coming home and then trying to organize your digital picture collection to somebody without depression. It's just, you're out of mental resources. You're just at a time when nobody who who doesn't have depression really understands the concept of waking up in the morning and not having the mental resources to get out of bed and take a shower. Um, And so I think thinking of it as sadness kind of creates this misperception about, about what it is and and how it operates. And I don't want to really say that my experience, um, should, should be a, you know, clinical example and, and should stand in for anybody else's experience. Everybody's experience is going to be different. Um, but talking with a lot of other people with depression, that, that description tends to resonate and, and that tends to be a
0: pretty common experience with it. Absolutely. And I don't think that I don't think it's it's absurd it's not absurd for you to say you know this is generally what depression is like when you're a person who experiences it and lives it and and it's more than it's more than reasonable to ask a person I mean it would be ridiculous to ask a person who hasn't experienced it to describe it and I think that's where empathy comes into play um you said specifically you know I think um I think that um God, i lost my train of thought because i was thinking but you said something along the lines of we um don't think about you know a person might not understand what they're going through which is where i think that society in general um really suffers from having a, an, an ability to to empathize i think very quickly as as a whole we move into sympathy where you're like oh man that must, that must really suck for you. Um, geez. Yeah, that, that sucks, but they don't ever really put themselves in the position to understand. And maybe sometimes they can't understand, which is fine. Like a person without depression would not be able to understand the experience of a person with depression, but they can take themselves into a place and try to imagine how that person's feeling and try to conceptualize it themselves. And I think that's where potentially we have gone wrong as a society is it's it's become a, some sort of a of a taboo to speak about, you know, having depression, which is why I wanted to talk to you about it cuz I knew you'd have some really smart thoughts about it. But I think that in, in general, um, we're not empathetic enough and I think people think that the the idea of empathy means you're, you know, promoting something negative that you are abating to to something in in a negative way when in reality being empathetic doesn't mean that any of your general underlying thoughts and principles are changed or affected it just means that you're trying to be in a place with somebody and and you you bring yourself to the place that they're at and you meet them where they're at even though you might not be there yourself and i think that we just lack empathy as a general culture
1: yeah and i mean i don't i think it's i think it's too easy to just say that there's a general lack of empathy i think there's a whole call me out call me lazy yeah do it (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i just i don't think it captures the whole picture and is there an empathy gap probably but there are other issues as well i mean i think that just generation upon generation of stigmatizing mental illness leaves us with a very very bad understanding of what it is and what it looks like and so a lot of times we're genuinely trying to empathize but i mean again if you think that depression is just sadness but more so that's going to prescribe a certain set of solutions that are going to be wholly inappropriate to the problem at hand. And it's not because you don't mean well, it's not because you're not trying to put yourself in the person's shoes, it's because you're doing a bad job of it because you don't understand. Um, And it's not, I mean that you don't understand because society hasn't given us the tools or the scripts or it hasn't hasn't put us in a situation to understand. Um, You know, you don't really see for the longest time, you didn't really see depression in art and, and representation in media. And um, people talk like that is a trivial thing. You know, what? who cares if the world we see on our screens or, you know, in our theaters or um, read about on our phones looks like the world as it truly is, but we understand the world as it truly is through the lens of the world that we see through art and through media. And and so again, it, society has equipped us with a poor set of policy tools for dealing with these things. Um, you know, I think a classic example is is um, gun control. And I'm not. I promise, I'm not going to get political here. But you know, whenever the gun control debate starts starts up, people start talking about things like school shootings or or banning like these these um, mass casualty events. Um, when those are just that's the teeniest, tiniest fraction of gun-related deaths and the the by far and away the biggest proportion of gun-related deaths are suicides Mm -hmm. and if you want to stop gun deaths in america like i'm not saying don't stop mass shootings that's a laudable goal but that's not going to dent the total problem but our media is showing mass shootings all the time and it's not talking about you know the the lonely um older guy whose wife just died and, and who, who, who can't deal with it, who doesn't have the support system to deal with it and decides tragically that, you know, his only option is suicide. And, and so it matters what we're shown and it matters what we see and it matters what we hear. And that's partly why I am so open about what depression looks like for me. And I'm sure it looks different for other people, but um, at least let that perspective be out there and, and let people be exposed to that because i mean i think that's just an unalloyed good i think
0: we can't really get better as a society until we understand the problem absolutely getting to the core of the problem getting back to the basics and that's been the tone of this entire conversation i've had with you it seems is like hey let's point out the obvious here what's the low hanging fruit what are the basics of this and what what can we can, what can we gain from this how how can we better understand where a person is coming from specifically speaking about depression in order to truly understand the problem and then try to work towards solutions so Man, this this is this is exactly what I wanted to have you on. I know you'd have super intelligible thoughts about all of these topics we've had. I really want to thank you. I've I've kept you on the line for 65 minutes already, and I had to re-record my intro, so I'm gonna let you go. But I don't want to let you go on uh, on this 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 conversation about mental health is extremely important. It's pertinent. It's relevant, and I don't want to undermine it. Um, it's, it's its own independent entity and I'm glad that we're having it. And anybody who doesn't want to listen to this, then I, you're not a part of my audience and Adam probably wouldn't, would say that, you know, you're not maybe the ideal person to li- to, to consume his content because this is something that's near and dear to his heart, something he lives and something that I am also very close to. So I don't necessarily, um, care if you want to say you stick to your sports cause we're in the middle of a pandemic and baseball looks well, like it's about say, to shut down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people because I've been writing about football for a while, they'll ask me, you know, what advice do you have to new writers? And and my first piece of advice is always write for the audience that you want because you get the audience that you write for. Um, and it's it's cool. You know, your audience, if you are, I mean, I, I tend to think I'm a pretty chill, drama-free guy. And as a result, I tend to get a pretty chill, drama-free audience. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. if people don't want to talk about this, they're not going to be following me. And that's okay with me. You know, I, I don't need to be universally loved. I would rather be you know,
0: left alone to do my own thing in peace with the people who want to do that thing with me. It sounds like you've gotten there. It sounds like you've gotten to a place where you you sound like you, you speak about this, like you've thought about it a lot. And I'm sure you have. And it sounds like you're in a good place, man. So I'm super, super stoked for you. But what what I want to say, what I want to end with then is, is first of all, a joke. I want you to, I want you to tell me if you know the answer to this question, what do you call a pig who knows karate? Um, I don't know, hit me a pork chop, A pork chop, not funny. Oh my That's gosh. I that. can't break them. Get it No. You All right. It? So
1: these two muffins are sitting in the oven. Okay. First muffin turns to the second muffin and says, man, is it just me or is it starting to get hot in here? So the second muffin turns to the first muffin and says, oh my God, a talking muffin,
0: it's <laughs> also a good one. Okay. Hold on. I got, I got, I got one for you too. All right. Two olives sitting on a counter. All right. Maybe have you have heard of this one? Uh, I don't know. No, okay, I don't think okay. so. Okay, two olives sitting on the counter. Um, somebody slams the door, and one of the olives goes rolling off the counter, lands on the ground, splat. One of the olives, you know, the other olive looks down at the the olive that fell on the ground and says, "Oh my gosh, are you okay?" The second olive looks up and says, "Olive, nothing, man. I can't no, even man, get a
1: I, I can't even get a chuckle out of you." Nah, sorry. Got off your game, man.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. All right. Well, I do want to say one more thing though. Um and, and maybe it's something fantasy football related or something that has to do with life in general. It could be anything. At the in the inju at the injury prone fantasy football podcast, we hand out band-aids of advice. Um so I want to know what's a tidbit, what's a band-aid of advice you have for the listeners.
1: Band-aid of advice. Um all right, I got one, and I like this because it sounds really deep and profound, and it kind of is deep and profound, but also, sure. you know, it's like, it's like those, those self-help posters that aren't <laughs> especially helpful. but <laughs> Let's hear it. So the only people in the world, in, in the history of mankind, who have gotten everything they ever wanted are the people who didn't want
0: anything they didn't have. Ooh, I had to think about that one. That's a good one. I like that. All. Can you say that again? Say that again for the listeners, please.
1: So the only people in the history of mankind who have gotten everything they ever wanted are the people who didn't want anything they didn't already
0: have. That's beautiful. I love that, man. That's great. Thanks again, dude. This was such a good conversation. You are a fan favorite on the Twitters. I'm pretty sure that that, that tweet that people responded to when I, when I said, uh, who, who do you want to hear his voice more of? Um, I don't even think those people followed me. I just like that tweet made made its way to them and they said, oh, adam we want more of adam so yeah everything's selection bias well that's all right man it's uh i, I think that it was uh, it turned out pretty well because i i scammed you into coming on to onto my podcast so i really appreciate it make sure you catch adam at adam harstad 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 i, I asked you this harstad. Right. Yep. harstad okay on twitter um you can catch him at the football guys is one of the one of the most nuanced and uh, intelligent people that you'll find in the fantasy community and elsewhere. So go find him. Make sure you are subscribing to the podcast. I'm still doing a contest. If you rate and review, rate a five-star review for me, screenshot it, tag me on Twitter, I will do a f- put you in the drawing for a free analysis, uh, injury analysis of your fantasy football team. So that's it for Adam, for me, for my two dogs, and for my wife out in the living room waiting for me to be done. This is the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast, and we will catch you next time.